I think as Black people, it can be hard to accept ourselves being American. It's hard for me sort of to accept being American by seeing how um, we're treated sometimes. And so this, like doing stuff like that helps me sort of to affirm my Americanness and inform how important these people are. Black creativity is unstoppable. The Studio Noise podcast takes you into the studio with Black artists and creatives making the art that moves the culture. You get to feel all the inspiration, technique, and passion behind the people making paintings, making sculptures, making prints, making noise. It's the Studio Noise podcast with your host, Jamal Barber. It's the noise. Yes, it's your boy, Jay Barber. It's funny how life comes together sometimes. Last year, I reached out to our guest, Stephen Towns, painter and quilter extraordinaire. He was just too busy. He has too much stuff going on. It was chaos. <laughs> it's life. And of course, I don't begrudge nobody that. I hope everybody gets to be busy. Everybody gets to wherever they're trying to get to. So appreciate that. You know, you always got a home for black art right here on the noise. So funny thing. I'm up in Winston-Salem doing my TEDx talk at Wake Forest. And what do you know, right across the street from my hotel, there's a big old banner <laughs> right there on the street. It says Ronaldo House Declaration and Resistance, Stephen Towns. There's a big old beautiful porches right there on the street so people can come and look at it. And of course, I get to go in there and it worked out for me. And I love it because I got to see the work in person, like firsthand pictures online. That's how I got to know him and, and really became a fan of his work. But seeing it in person uh, gives you a whole new perspective honestly it made me love it even more because you get the, all the colors you get to get all the metallic tones that he put into it all the good stuff all that all the details i love that kind of stuff and especially seeing the quilts in person i'm really impressed by the quilts after i saw that show i loved it even more i had to get my guy on the show had to wait and get him back and finally we got steven towns on the show because there's so much to talk about in the show Declaration and Resistance still at Ronaldo House through May 14th. Got to check it out. If you if you even got kind of a chance <laughs> to go and see it, you really need to go check it out. It's a wonderful show. But it's so much to talk about in this show. Cause I want to get into like the research he did to find all these archive photos that, that he uses references. I want to talk about his approach to painting, especially the colors and the other materials that he's using. The, the quilting, which I thought were particularly impressive. And, you know, all the little special stuff that he puts inside his artwork, you know, being in the Smithsonian National African-American Museum, all, all the stuff. We want to want to talk about all of it. It's all that good talk, yo. So, you know, we get into that and much, much more right here on The Noise. It's The Noise, Studio Noise, the voice of black art brought to you by Black Art in America, the place where you can buy and learn about art. New shows coming to the Buy Gallery, May 30th through April 29th, Kindred. Featuring Kevin Johnson and Akinola Tai. Kevin's vibrant, evocative portraits paired with Akinola's expressive paintings, exploring the African experience. It's going to be a must see show right here in Atlanta. Come on down to 1802 Connolly Drive, East Point, Georgia. You don't want to miss it. The open reception is April 1st from 2 to 4. I'll be there. I hope you're there. It's going to be a fantastic show. You don't want to miss it. Now, go to blackartamerica.com to learn more. Follow. Studio Noise at Studio Noise Podcast on IG to check out my pictures that I took at the show Declaration and Resistance. 
And right now you get to hear from the man himself, Stephen Towns. Going to learn you something today about painting and quilting and all that good art stuff that we love to talk about. It's the noise, baby. Yes. Hey y'all, my name is Simone Elizabeth Saunders. I'm a textile artist here in Canada, and you are listening to Studio Noise. All right, yes, it's your boy Jay Barber back with more Studio Noise, the voice of black art. Guaranteed, I tell you, I always bring you the very best in black contemporary art all the time. So I got today, we got my man, Stephen Towns on the podcast with me how you doing man i'm good how you doing i'm good man so glad to get you on the show man i tried to get you last year but you were right in the midst of doing I, some I, big things man it was last year was chaos <laughs> <laughs> i'm able to take a yeah, breath man. now that's what's up man yeah we want to hear all about it too as we as we get going man but the steven towns man i i was lucky enough to get to see your exhibit at the Ronaldo house uh, declaration and resistance is up right now until may 14th this is the last stop on the tour man but uh powerful work man thank you powerful the colors the stories man the photos how you translate man it is just remarkable fascinating work so i'm so glad to get you on the podcast to talk about it and so tell me about that tell me about the kind of foundation of the show like how do you start to come up with it where'd you get your idea stuff like that uh, so a lot of it just came out of the idea of wanting to explore Black American labor um, because a lot of my work had been spent beforehand talking about slavery and um, the history of slavery and its effect on times today. And so I wanted to go from that era to post-slavery. So it was sort of, it's never a light topic. American history is never a light topic. And so this was sort yeah, of yeah. the... Um, impetus for that and the other thing especially from this perspective yeah um and one thing that we were just talking about is that i'm originally from south carolina a small town called lincolnville um i graduated from the university of south carolina um and i think that after i majored in art and i'm one of those artists that has had sort of a non-traditional career um, I was a bit of a wanderer. And so a lot of times I was just working and doing my art full time. And I've had every job under the sun. I've had retail. I worked in factories. I worked in restaurants. I basically did everything. Um, and so um, this was sort of a love letter to all of the people that I met along the way, both that I love and that got on my nerves, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I know that. I know that feeling. I was... uh. Um, uh, food service manager at Target. I did a, a yes. transfer truck driver at U-Haul. Like <laughs> I did it. I did it all. I definitely know that struggle. Yeah. And so as you were doing all that, you were still like doing art, like on the sides at nights, like describe that process. Um, I think sort of as an artist, you have to have something in your mind that, that you have to do it because to a normal person or to a person that's not an artist, they'll be like, uh, you're crazy. Why are you spending all this time drawing this or painting this? Um, and so it was something that I always did. So while I was working in retail, I would always sort of paint in the garage or whatever I had to work with um, at the time and try to figure out ways of exhibiting work. 
Um, and it wasn't until I moved to Baltimore in 08 during the economic crisis. I lost my job in South Carolina. There was nothing going on there. And so I stayed in D.C. and Baltimore for a while, um, unemployed for about two years, um, making work, um, figuring out exhibition opportunities. And it's just a, it's just a, a sort of an ongoing process of like putting myself out there um, and trying to get people to talk about it. Um, and um, it wasn't until like five years ago um, that things started picking up after my first exhibition at the Baltimore Museum of Art was my first museum exhibition. Yeah, that's not a, that's not a bad first show right there. <laughs> I well, so so I during that whole time period, I was also showing in in various places here in Baltimore. So me and my partner husband, uh, I would make the work. He would help me with advertising making press packets, and then we would go out and sort of shop my work. And so it, it's been sort of an ongoing, like, sort of difficult process, but um, it's sort of paying off within the last um, probably like five years. I always tell people that it's not sort of a, a simple process. And the thing to keep in mind is that I existed before the time of Instagram. So Instagram mm. has sort of opened up like these new opportunities for me. Um, that I don't know how I would have had without it. That's right. That's right. And I think I read that you were self-taught in in like some of the, a lot of the techniques you use. Yeah, yeah. So um, I am trained as a painter and taught as a painter. Um, and I started quilting um, because of the my first quilt piece called Birth of Nation, which is in the show. Um, I tried drawing it, I tried painting it, and none of that ever worked. And so I had to figure out how to sew. So in our tiny apartment, I was watching YouTube videos, learning how to sew, learning techniques. Um, and it <laughs> took me about a month, month and two to make that quilt. Um, and sort of ever since then, I've been able to sort of pick up things off of YouTube. Um, I know people who are quilters. Um, one of my good friends, Christy Taylor, is a quilter. And she's been able to give me good tips. And so it's been a process um, learning a new medium and trying to sort of understand it and master it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I was a self, I taught myself screen printing. Oh. And so, like, I find like artists, when they do like actually teach themselves, that they develop like a different kind of language and, and technique for doing it because we don't quote, know the, you know, quote unquote, right way to do things or, like a particular order that is kind of like passed down mm -hmm. from person to person. We kind of just develop our own thing a little bit. Like you, do you feel like your quilts are like that? Yeah. I mean, cause I gotta say, I gotta say this first. When I looked at the show, I really enjoyed the paintings, but there was something very special about the quilts, even how they're placed throughout the show and like the way they're reflecting like different narratives, I thought was very fascinating. So I really love the paintings, but it's something about the quilts I kept like going back to and like looking at it a little bit closer? Well, they are very sort of, they are very labor intensive. And like you were saying, um, it's because you didn't learn from a person that teaches it. Like you take on things and you learn things that are not the right way to do it, but they are the right way for you to communicate what you're trying to do um, in that work. And so like with, my paintings, I feel like with my quilts, I have to spend much more time with them. And also um, 
quilting for me can be communal. I have two other people, two or three other people that are able to help me when I'm quilting them. So there's, it's, I feel like it's more communicative when I make those works. Mm -hmm. And they are very, very labor intensive. It's just me spending hours trying to sew or trying to figure out um, how to arrange stuff. So when you're looking at that, you're looking at the hours that are being taken to figure that out. And then also there is a lot of doing and undoing. There are a lot of mistakes Mm. that like, I don't care how much of an expert you are, that you're going to have a lot of mistakes and something can take you five minutes to do and take you seven hours to undo. And so when you Mm. look at those, you see all of that um, in those works. Yeah. Yeah. Now that that's fascinating. Cause I I would ask you the same thing. Like, like now, after having done it for so long, do you feel more confident in it, or do you still feel like you're still learning, like how to do it properly? I'm still learning because I have to go between. Uh, I have a small studio, so I'm not able to do both things at the same time. So I spend a couple months painting, and then I spend a couple months quilting. And it's every mm. time I switch over, it's like I'm having to sort of. I have the skills that I've developed, but there are things that I have to sort of relearn. And with mm. sewing, like the, I'm having to learn how to use a machine, and machines work in a certain way. And you have your favorite machine, like you have your favorite car. Um, so it's a lot of um, sort of going back and forth and relearning each time I do a new piece. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm happy because it keeps my mind occupied. Yeah, yeah, I I find it is better like that where you like instead of uh, oh, I tell my students at Georgia State I don't really suffer from block because I always have something else to switch to, and so it's never like me just sitting and worried about a woodcut exactly. at any particular time. Like I'll jump to an etching, I'll jump to a mixed media joint, I'll do like whatever, and so it's not you're not letting your mind stay stagnant like that way. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so let's go into the the show a little bit more, man. Let's talk about, um, I thought it was interesting how you sourced a lot of the photographs uh, that you used as reference. Tell us about their process. Yeah. So uh, like one of my first major shows that I did was on Nat Turner's Rebellion. Um, and so part of that was like learning the history of the area, reading books about Nat Turner um, and going through archival materials. And that's where I sort of felt the love of going through history and going through archival materials to unearth stories. And so Mm -hmm. I wanted to do that, especially with this show. The thing that inspired me the most was this book called um, Never Caught about um, this woman named Ona Judge, who was one of um, Washington's enslaved women who escaped and they never got her. Um, And from that, I started learning about other people and and how people resisted, not only through escape, but through labor, um, Mm -hmm. post-slavery. And one of the things that, I worked with the curator, Kalolo Luckett, um, and we sort of came up with the theme of the show, the title of the show, um, and I told her some of my ideas and she would bounce some of her ideas back to me. And I would go through different archives in Pittsburgh and, West Virginia to figure out sort of the stories um, that have happened. And then I would reach out to the institutions that own the the rights to those works um, and ask for permission to use them um, for my work. That's good. And it's 
I like hearing about that extra step of getting permission from like sources because a lot of times like people just grab stuff off the internet and just start going and uh, and it's funny how and your your pictures aren't like this but how a lot of times when we see a photograph that already has art in it like it's already magical it already has energy and we want to some people want to transfer that energy from the photo into their painting and it doesn't work because the energy is non-transferable right but the way you're doing it is you're taking these black and white photos and you're adding color and you're adding like different layers. You're adding a whole new um, perspective to it. So it's not just a direct translation just for the effect of it. Like you're enhancing and sort of retelling the story that was captured like in this moment. Yeah. I mean, the thing with the using archival materials is like, of course, like we were, you were talking about, I use black and white images. So I always have to play with the tone of skin tone. So I look at a face and try to figure out like what skin tone it is. I paint mostly black people. So I'm looking at family members, um, photos and, and just looking at people. Um, and then I also sort of research um, vintage shops that have clothes period, clothing at that time period so that I can get the color of the clothing that that person mm. is wearing. And then um, I include a lot of the magical elements that I always include in my work, like the metal and gold leaf and butterflies and a lot of um, flowers and sort of these ethereal spaces that I kind of like am imagining what my childhood um, was. And so, um, I try to include that in all the work. And then also when you're looking at archival materials, I also look at the descriptors, the words that are sort of describing what's happening. Sometimes photos don't have them. Sometimes people don't know what's going on. So I also have to use my imagination to sort of tell a story and look at little tiny things within the images to sort of figure out like what kind of, what is that telling? What is that object mm -hmm. in there telling and how I can bring it out in the, um, in the painting mm -hmm. of Wolf. Mm -hmm. How did you how did you come to the to knowing that you needed to add that extra step to it? Like, did you do like a few of the black and white ones, and they just weren't like ringing for you? Like, how did how did that light bulb go off in your head? I think it's just always something that I figured out that I had to do um, with this particular <laughs> show. It's like I can't just translate one to one with these particular images, especially so in the show, there is a section that highlights this photographer named Teeny Harris. He is a photographer based out of Pittsburgh. He photographed black life in Pittsburgh in the early 1900s. And so like looking at those images, they were from a time period where I know people that lived during that time period. And he is an amazing photographer. He sets things up amazingly in his studio and just, even just like he has the best shots. Like I don't need to do anything to improve his images. Mm -hmm. And so the thing was reaching out, getting permission from the archive, and then also knowing that he has his story to tell. And it's sort of a communication between me, him, sort of in my head, my communication with him and the person that's actually being photographed. So I feel like there are like these three conversations that are happening whenever I'm making mm -hmm. my work. Yeah, I really like that. Like, tell me about one piece in particular, the one called Hair Lessons. 
So hair lessons was um, an image that actually did um, did not have a good descriptor. So Pitini took uh, images for a, a newspaper in Pittsburgh. And so because he is a photographer and he's since passed, like he had all of these photo photographs. And so sometimes there would be descriptors on them but I couldn't tell what was happening. At first it looked like a church, but then it looked like maybe it was mm. a salon. And I finally figured out that it must've been a church, but it's an image of these black women doing hair. Um, and um, if you look at the image, if you have it on the website, like there is this sort of triangle that I see in the actual photograph. And I try to recreate and sort of highlight that triangle um, in the actual painting using um, white paint to highlight that. And for me, it sort of evoked the feeling of like when I was a child and when I would go with my sisters, Mabel and Novita, Miss Joanne Salon, and like the smell of her salon, the smell of her mm, pressing yeah. people's hair and just like the conver those conversations. And so like I was in trying to imbue all of that feeling into that painting. I don't know if that helps at all. I think I said too much. No, it does. No, it, it does. It does. Because uh, like you said, like uh, this section of it was really, the section of it was really about the normalcy of blackness. Like there are everyday lives, like within some of the spaces. So I found that one fascinating because it did remind me of like my aunts and cousins, like getting together and doing each other's hair for like Easter events and, you know, stuff like that. So like I, I had a personal connection to that one, so I wanted to know like more about it because a lot of it is like you know it was guys cooking, mm -hmm. like it's a girl like hanging out by the pool, mm -hmm. like you know it's like all these like little moments of blackness that you know when we do tell the black story, we do get caught up in the civil rights narrative a lot, and we don't pay attention to just kind of the normalcy of of how we used to live, how we survive inside of these moments despite everything that was going on around us. And so I love to see that kind of thing, especially like the color and the vibrancy that you bring to it. It doesn't look like it's um, we're being downtrodden. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Despite like the context of like everything that's happening, like we were living, yeah. you know, trying to live. Yeah. Cause like, especially with that piece, like I would go and try and um, Google um, antique shops to see sort of the dresses that were worn at the time. You can look at a thousand black and white photos, but it doesn't help if you don't actually see what they look like. So I would have to do that with that one. And even sort of like what you were talking about with the dressing and people dressing up, like I paid a lot of attention to that with the, there's a painting called Flora and Lily, who were mm. these two women who worked at Ronaldo House and uh, the black side called Fifth five row. Um, and when I look at their um, old black and white image, like there's a, it's a, it's blurry and there are a lot of things confusing and they're wearing these beautiful sort of regal um, gowns and sort of the thing that I had to keep in mind is like, even if you're a worker, if you're having your photograph taken, like you, it's not like today where you can just pull out your phone. Like you want to wear like your best clothing when you are um, taking those photographs. And then when I talked to a researcher, she was also talking about how um, they would take these photos when they were getting ready to go to church or something like that. 
Um, mm-hmm. So just making sure, like you said, I'm saying a lot to say, yeah, like people were just, <laughs> people were living um, um, and yeah. jo- enjoying like this life despite hardships. Yeah. And the relationship to photography that you were talking about where, you know, everybody didn't have a camera. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, it was probably some event that was happening where somebody had a camera in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> because it wasn't like so commonplace. And it's not like you can just sit and take a snap. It took minutes to like create a photograph uh, during that time yeah. period. Yeah. Yeah. I mentioned this one, but tell me more about uh, Miss Elsie Henderson. Yeah. I, I really like this piece. That is like one of my favorite. It's Miss Elsie um, sort of at a pool. It's from an old family photograph. But Miss Elsie was the um, house person cook at Falling Water, which is a Frank Lloyd Wright house in um, Pennsylvania. And she worked for the Kaufman family. Falling Water is sort of this, if people Google it, they'll recognize it because they've seen it in school. Um, But she would, um, every week she would call to figure out what they had eaten that week so that when they come to Falling Water during the weekends that um, she could have everything there prepared for them. Um, And she was just a very diligent worker. Um, There were lots of people that uh, knew her um, and talked about how amazing she was, the stories um, that she had. I wanted to meet her, but I couldn't because she passed like right before COVID ended at like Mm. 106, 107 years old. Wow. Um, Wow. And every time you see images of Elsie, she's always like, you see the older image of her holding a cake or doing something in the kitchen. And I just wanted to sort sort of show the vibrancy um, of her and her mind, because the thing I sort of think about is like, sort of like, as we age, we still are a person and an age in our head, but maybe our body may not be that. And so I wanted to show the vibrancy that people talked about, about her and the actual yeah. image of her. Yeah. I like that one. And so from there, you had another, uh, section that was dealing with, um, soldiers and being like enlisted in the military and black people. Uh, tell me about the whole section, like in general, why that became such an important narrative for you to include in this show. Yeah. So I have a brother in that retired military. I have a brother-in-law that's retired military. Um, I, I mean, sort of as being a child of the eighties, like one of the pivotal moments was like the Gulf war um, September 11th and the war in Afghanistan and sort of that idea of the military um, and how important it was for people, especially Black people. Sometimes if you live in a town like where I come from, it can be hard to escape. And so I find that sometimes people escape through the military and joining the military and like traveling the world. Um, and these people risk their lives um, to um, defend this country. And so I wanted to create this um, this whole series and narrative um, sort of celebrating them, just like I celebrated like coal miners in another section, because mm-hmm. like the, I think as black people, it can be hard to accept ourselves being American. It's hard for me sort of to accept being American by seeing how um, we're treated sometimes. And so this, like doing stuff like that 
helps me sort of to affirm my Americanness and inform how important these people are in creating this country and shaping this country. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, that story of exactly how patriotic you have to be to deal with like what you deal with and still go fight uh, for the country. You know what I mean? Like I, I thought yeah. that was fascinating, but also we're coming back to, um, and tell me if this is true over a lot of the pictures, but the idea of ceremony um, of people like revealing, like as one where a woman is with her family, um, it's another one where it's two, actually tell me about this one, two Navy soldiers, um, sailors, I'm sorry, two Navy sailors. Tell me about this one. So that one actually came from an archive out of South Carolina. Um, and for me, um, I, growing up um, with a brother who was in the military and a, um, uh, my a brother-in-law who was in the military too, like sort of the sort of tenseness around that, but then also hearing the story that they have of their experience in the brotherhood that they develop with other soldiers. Like it's, there's a whole language that people in the military talk that I think non-military people don't understand. It's like sometimes I yeah. hear my brother and brother-in-law talking. I'm like, what are y'all saying to each other? <laughs> and so I felt like when I saw that image, like it sort of showed the connection between these two people that sometimes outsiders can't get. Um, there's a softness and a warmness between them. You see them as a, um, a, a you see a deep friendship there. And then you also see like these flowers and these blooming things around them to show sort of the spirituality that surrounds them. Yeah. And I think that creates a like different context between the two, because like, I'm sure they were just like kind of standing there, <laughs> standing there posing for the photo, but like, yeah, like with the, it, this copperly, is that copper or gold? Um, like in the back? So I use a mixture of copper and uh, gold leaf. Um, I always mm -hmm. say that sort of the, when the elements that you always see in my work, you see sparkly shining things. And that sort of is uh, my evolved way of looking at God being reflective sort of everywhere. And you see the spirituality mm -hmm. in the people. And then you also yeah. see nature mimicking it. And you also see like butterflies. And for me, butterflies represent spirituality. Sometimes they're surrounding the figure. Sometimes the figure is looking directly at it, or sometimes it's behind them and you don't sort of know that they are um, these spiritual beings. But I, but, I, but I grew up Jehovah's Witness. And so I always felt that like being a Jehovah's Witness there is more emphasis placed on God and not the spirituality of the human being and the person. And so in my work, I want to like focus on the spirituality of the human being. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, it, and they have a kind of uh, iridescence to them that is reflected in the, in either the copper or the gold, whatever it is that you use, that metallic sheen, your colors also take on that kind of iridescence. Like as you do it, so it, it does bring in that spiritual aspect to the people. It 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 um, gives them more spirit mm -hmm. than just a plain photograph. And so I really appreciate that. The colors are always fantastic. How do you how do you come across your colors? Like, how, was this like just a conscious choice to like be so vibrant with them, or or is it just something that developed? I think it's developed. I when I started painting early, I will never forget. I 
I think sometimes you hold on to these moments, but I remember yeah. a gallerist telling me that my work is too dark when I was in South Carolina. Mm. And so I was like, well, dark in theme? Yeah, I always do work that's dark in theme and dark in color. Um, and so that's always in the back of my mind. And then I think I just sort of developed it, especially um, and seeing like the vibrancy and colors that people wear, like my mind goes back to the 90s and the cross colors and those things. And like there is always like a vibrancy in clothes that I felt that like we as Black Americans have worn. And so I've been trying to embrace that in the work that I do. Black Art in America is the place to buy and learn about art. On April 7th, Fathers and Father Figures Friday, 6.30 to 8 p.m., join Jim Alexander, Kevin Williams, and your boy Jamal Barber for a conversation about the role of fathers and father figures and cultivating artistic talents and freedom of self-expression for the children. Moderated by Ramal Toon, author of I Wish My Dad, The Power of Vulnerable Conversation Between Fathers and Sons. Make sure you come through at Atlanta's Home for Black Art the Black Art America Gallery. That's 1802 Connolly Drive, East Point, Georgia. Go to blackartamerica.com to learn more. This is Lani Howard. I'm a figurative artist working in Los Angeles, and you are listening to Studio Noise. And you're doing a great job at it, too. Thank you. Uh, tell tell about the parade because in the parade, um, it still has the same vibrancy, but that flag is so like crystal clear, like coming through the background of that. Tell us about that one. Yeah, the flag I sort of on purpose decided to make it that vibrant color because uh, well, this was a photograph. The, you see these um, guys in the per- marching band sort of standing in front of this old dilapidated building in this um, flag um, that they're holding up. And from the actual image, I think I read that it was a parade, a Memorial Day parade or something like that. I can't remember exactly where it was. It was in West Virginia. And doing this show, I've had to travel to different parts of Pennsylvania and West Virginia. This was during the Trump years. Um, And so I can say sort of like as a black person, sometimes when you see the American flag in a small town or in a neighborhood, it feels like this is a place to, it's like a warning sign. Like this is not a place to be. Um, Yeah. And because like in the show, I always want to affirm that I am an American, like instead of that flag being a warning sign, it was a way to show that these people embraced it in West Virginia during whatever time period that was taken from my, I can't remember the exact date right now, but it's just an embracing of the American flag. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's fascinating how that can happen. Um, We're both from, well, I'm from North Carolina. You're from South Carolina. Uh, Tell me if if, if that had any bearing on how you started to see things and and what you depict in your paintings. Yeah, I think, um, Growing up in the South, I mean, there's sort of this whole idea of like Southern gentility um, and just the spirit of the South. But then when you move someplace else, like I moved to Baltimore, 
I think I was shielded from um, a lot of things that I didn't notice in the South. I think I like living in the racism of the South. I didn't see it because I was so like in it. Like sometimes, mm -hmm. and sometimes it takes being removed from it that you can see it. And um, like Baltimore, it's like you see the best things about the country and you see the worst things about the country. And that's when I started to look at history to understand like why things are the way they are. Why are there so many people on drugs? Why? How did the crack epidemic affect Baltimore in the 80s and 90s? What happened during slavery? Baltimore was sort of like the um, the um, the point between going from the south to the north. Um, mm -hmm. And so um, being here has made me think a lot about being down there and the things that I experienced down there. And so I think that always sort of um, infuses itself into my work. I don't know if I answered your question. <laughs> <laughs> nah, nah, that that's exactly it. Because uh, it's hard to describe to people, but like living in the South is a feeling, especially when you're living in like small town, rural South. Like you know, me in Littleton, North Carolina, Halifax County, one of the poorest counties in North Carolina, and how North Carolina's not a rich state. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you mm -hmm. know what I mean? So, like that kind of experience. Like looking back, I can see how the schools are still segregated. Like I looking back, I can see like the history of how racism divided and is maintained like even to this day and so like it's hard to separate yourself from it because you are like immersed in it like it becomes like a part of you in a, in a way in a way that you kind of don't want like we want to fight against it and there are always people fighting against it um but it is undeniable that it does like leak into how you see things but at the same time like i was just uh, i'm just trying to work on something and i was going through family photographs. Like the thing that is amazing about that is like, I didn't see very much sadness in the photos. It's like, there's still a per perseverance and like a love of community and a love of family that still exists beyond sort of the circumstances that are created by our environment. Mm -hmm. Now that's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. Because even the moments that we remember, we remember the moments of family. We don't remember, I remember tragedies, um, but not the everyday tragedies, mm -hmm. like the everyday afflictions. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, my, my dad will tell me a story of getting chased um, by a bunch of people in a car and he had to defend himself. That's part of the South story. Mm -hmm. But he also tells me about going to the creek and fishing with his cousins. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That we hear that much more often. And that was more reflective of like, the daily lives. It was kind of like racism was happening and it was happening around us. And we just kind of, you know, did our thing like yeah. in, in between. We adapted and we survived. Exactly. Exactly. Where'd you grow up in North Carolina and South Carolina? Um, a small town called Lincolnville. Nobody's ever heard Lincoln of it. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's ever heard of it. It's a small town started by um, Freeman. Um, but it's basically feels like it's been annexed into another town. So I don't think Lincolnville yeah. will exist probably in the next 10, 15 years. <laughs> it's been um, turned into a um, suburbs, I think it's about to be turned wow. into. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but but it was, I, I had a very uh, sort of, it was a, uh, 
I, I, it wasn't Andy Griffith. I'm not going to pretend like it was Andy Griffith, but like I was outside a lot picking blackberries and blueberries and there, um, there you go. doing stuff like that. But um, it was it was quite an experience. Awesome. Do you, have, you ever think you'll move back? Part of me um, wants to, but then it's like I'm I'm here now. <laughs> I think sometimes <laughs> it's hard to yeah. go back, especially in the profession that I'm in. I'm like I feel like really the Northeast is sort of the easiest place to be if you're trying to be. Nothing's easy if you're trying to be an artist, but the Northeast is probably the um, better place to be if you're trying to mm-hmm. be an artist. There are lots. So of- growing up. Growing up, did you did you know you wanted to be an artist? Like, uh, was that a thing, or were you like ended up being an artist like after a while because it was undeniable? I mean, the eighties were like this Bob Ross, the, the, the era of Bob Ross, and so like yeah. I remember like watching that on PBS in the afternoons, um, and but nobody knew what an artist was. I just I felt like art was my best way of communicating. I didn't feel like I was a good verbal communi- I was not a good verbal communicator. And art was sort of the thing that I loved to do. I loved teaching it to other th- people. Um, and so it was something that I sort of intrinsically had to do. I think sometimes it's thrown onto some of us that um, just have to do it. And I'm like one of those people mm-hmm. that sort of it's, it's thrown onto, and whether I make money or not, it's something that I'm always going to do. Yeah, I agree with that one too. And yeah. I, I think um, me growing up, especially like uh, nobody, it was never even an option because you know how you're gonna get you some land if you're making art mm-hmm. all the time. Like exactly, like that was kind of that was kind of the goal. Like you got to get you some land and <laughs> get you a little a trailer or something. Uh, to be out there, so yeah, like people weren't people weren't thinking about like making art as a legitimate like something you can maintain yourself with. Yeah, and we didn't know anybody that was an artist. I didn't know. Mm-hmm. I probably I don't remember going to an art museum until I was in college. So same, like, same. It's like it's just something you are compelled to do, and you continue to do it, whether. It, drives you or everybody else around you crazy <laughs> it's just something you have to do but I, yeah i don't remember yeah. going to an art school and high and co- until college yeah and it's funny how like now i can look back and i can see like people in the neighborhood that you know such such used to decorate their yard with like you know random stuff from like people houses and mm-hmm. stuff but we didn't consider it being an artist like that she, she wasn't an artist she was just like you know different like you know what i mean like they didn't even know have a word for it like back in the day but yeah. they would make they would make little stuff with scraps and you know maybe somebody might end up doing some whittling you definitely saw ladies in the neighborhood making quilts you know mm-hmm. and stuff like that but that wasn't considered art it was like a thing that you did <laughs> you know what i mean and that's sort of like what that's how i felt like it was it's like people decorated their yards or they would paint something and then that like now we can look at it as art, but it was like a way of living for people out yeah, of whatever ob- sure. whatever objects or materials that you had. For sure. And did did you see people quilting, like getting back to your know, exhibition a little bit? So we get to the section where like after we get through a lot of these paintings, like then your quilts start to show up and they're really amazing. So did you see people quilting like growing up and did that kind of flash back to kind of jumpstart like your interest in it or 
Like, how did you get into it? Well, my mother was a sewer, so I saw her sewing. Um, I don't remember her quilting very often, but we would always go with her to pick fabric because she would, this is before the days of Old Navy. So she would make all of our clothes. Back when you were embarrassed to have your mother wear your clothes, we had like (laughs) jams were like the shorts that kids wore during that time. Only certain people know of a certain age know about this stuff, but she would make us those clothes. And so I remember like her buying the patterns and laying the patterns out on her bed and cutting them. Um, And we couldn't touch her sewing machine because it was her sewing machine. But like seeing her so, um, it sort of brings back those memories. Mm-hmm. So tell me about the the first quilt that you made, like on this journey, and like how how much it differed from your painting. Mm-hmm. The first quilt that I made was called "Birth of a Nation." Um, it shows this um, wet nurse feeding this white baby. Um, and so how I made that, it's a memorial for um, my, one of my sisters, Mabel, who was passed. Um, she and my sister, Novi, owned the cleaning business. And sometimes when you are working in those uh, situations, sometimes you can feel a level of disrespect. And Mabel would always say, how can you disrespect me when my grandmother literally fed your grandfather? And so like mm. those words kept coming up in my mind while I was doing work around slavery. And that piece came in my mind and I was like, I have to do this painting. And it didn't work as a painting. It didn't work as a drawing. And then I finally figured out that I had to make it myself through fabric. So I went home, I got some of my mother's fabric. I found other fabrics and I constructed this piece um, just watching YouTube videos on how to sew. um, And that's how it was developed. Yeah, and did you feel like, once you made it, did you feel like that was the answer that you were looking for? It was. It was sort of like a breath of, uh, it was a release. It was a release of all of these feelings that I was having. Um, um, and it felt like it communicated the things that she was saying for um, a long time. And that was made in like 2014, 2015. And so like every time it's shown, Like I always get um, really good feedback from people. And it's so um, sort of interesting to see like Mabel's voice live on through this piece and how often Mm -hmm. it has touched other people. And so like her, even though she's not here now, she's able to say these things to other people. I don't feel like it was made by me. I feel like it was made by her. Ah, That's powerful right there, man. That's super powerful. Uh, tell me about the one uh, Marcus Garvey. Yeah. Um, so the way I use him in this sort of story of American labor is like and like resistance is like sometimes when you have an idea, it doesn't necessarily um, happen the way you want it to happen. And sometimes not all ideas are completely successful, but they make change. And I feel like Marcus Garvey is sort of one of those figures. He's become Jesus-like. And so sometimes Mm. it can be hard to like know and learn his story because there are so many myths around it, but there are a lot of like truths. Um, And one of the things that um, I wanted to highlight in this work, so when you see the work, it's a, a giant quote of Marcus Garvey. You see Marcus Garvey standing up 
and you see these three women sewing the Pan-African flag, which was developed by um, him and his group. And then you see his wife standing beside him. In the back, you see the Black Star, which is the ship that um, he wanted to use to send um, Black people back to Africa. And in the background is the skyline of um, New York. Um, and it's sort of this ethereal image that sort of, that I'm hoping to convey sort of just like the idea of like these big ideas and these big things and this vision that somebody have and trying to get it to come into fruition. And so as a person, sometimes you have to have these big ideas in order to try and have them come to fruition. And like, as we know in his history, like not everything worked out because Part of right. it was that he didn't have people working for him. Some of the people that were working for him just didn't know how to do it. And also it was the government after him too. Yeah. 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 That complex history right there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I want to talk a little bit as we like close out for the show. Y'all please go see the show. Like it's up till May 14th. If you get a chance uh, right there in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, like you got to check it out. Uh, it's a fascinating show. Um, one part that we don't get to talk about a lot is that this show toured and so you went from the boys museum i think you said to another one and now this is the last stop for this show as far as we know so far um tell me about that process because we don't talk a lot about like the idea that these bodies of work that we have have a longer life than we think it it is and you're able to show it to a different audience every time so it becomes like a new experience for the people in Pennsylvania compared to North Carolina. Um, and how long has the process been? How did it all come together that you were able to like move it from place to place like this? Well, I mean, I'm not going to pretend like it's an easy thing. It's been a long sort of laborious process and it wouldn't have been like as an artist, you have to have financial support. And um, it was with the support of the best backing of the Westmoreland Museum of Art. Um, that the show was developed and Kalolo and I had worked out the idea and all of the text and everything for it. Um, and with them and the, with Kalolo, Kalolo sort of spearheaded a lot of this in making sure that this happens. Um, I think if a person wants to do this, then they have to have sort of a good team that is able to support them in this because um, there is contracts that have to be written um, transportation. So we had planned this before COVID um, and mm. COVID changed a lot of things. It changed the price of wood that's used to pack things. It also just changed, it changed the cost of fuel, which drove up the price of shipping. So like there are all these things that sort of have to factor into creating a traveling show. And so if an artist is interested in do that, I would say that they definitely need a sort of a team of people um, or museum backing to create um, a tour. Uh, without it, it's just too much work for one person to sort of take on. Because I don't want to give the impression that I am the person who did that. <laughs> like it is the museum <laughs> saying right. that we have a show that we think is important and that we think other museums should see. Um, and then um, seeing who um, accepts the show. And so um, when we shopped, the sh it started at Westmoreland Museum of American Art in Pennsylvania and traveled to Boise, Idaho, um, Boise Museum of Art, which accepted the show. 
and Ronaldo is the final stop, um, and they accepted the show. And so it's um, it's been a long process, um, but it's been a very fulfilling process seeing how much the work has um, touched so many people. Ah, and I think people need to hear that that is that is possible to do it, but you do need uh, institutional support to like pull off like some of the bigger ideas in in the way that we think about. Um, how artists get known across the country, you know what I'm saying? How do you get into yeah. all these universities? How does a show travel? Like you need to have an investment like in the idea, in the concept. So the work already has to be solid enough. Uh, then you have to communicate that and get buy-in from institutional support. Yeah. Like that's good to know. Yeah. Cause I didn't finish all the work before they sent out the prospectus. I mean, um, it was them believing in my, um, work in my process that I was able to get that done. And then it's not just the, and so to be completely transparent, it's not just the museum funding it. It's like getting grants from the NEA and other organizations. Mm -hmm. So like this is, and then each museum that gets the show has to raise funds to put on programming and to do other things around the exhibitions. So like it's a whole host of people who are um, working behind the scenes to make sure that this um, work is shown and it's shown in the way that it's supposed to be shown. Right. Ah, that, that's good to know. People need to put that on your list. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, like this summer has to be developed over time. Mm -hmm. um, so not, it's not just the work, y'all. It's the, it's the connections and communication mm -hmm. that you're able to do mm -hmm. uh, to get that kind of investment in your work. Mm -hmm. um, was this the first time you worked with a curator? like in, in putting it together? Because it sounded like she was really essential uh, to the process of getting it done and putting it all together. Well, no, this was actually, so I've worked with her before, but uh, my, the first time I worked with a curate, well, I've worked with several curators trying to put together shows throughout Baltimore, but the first museum exhibition at the Baltimore Museum of um, Art, I worked with a curator, Cecilia Winchman, um, and the director, um, Christopher Bedford at the time to put together that show. And so it's for an artist that is sort of um, sort of rising, it helps to have like people behind you who believe in your work because they are the ones that are able to help um, let other people know about the work that you're doing. Um, and like for me, it helps to sort of keep me on a path to say like people feel that what I'm doing is important. It gives me sort of the strength to be able to continue to do what I'm doing. So, but mm -hmm. Kalolo has been just a, um, I cannot say enough good words about her and how important she is um, in my life and how important she is with this exhibition. Um, check out her, check her out, um, Kalolo Luckett. <laughs> yeah, I have to bring her on a podcast too yeah. to talk to her. Uh, as a, a whole nother like part of the industry that, that we need to discuss even more, you know, the, the mm -hmm. importance that they are able to introduce these institutions to people like yourself or, or anybody uh, that's making good work. Like they don't find you by accident. You know no, I mean? no. And things were not easy. Like things are not easy and things were not easy before. I would say before, um, I think the impetus for people showing black art honestly was Trayvon Martin. Mm -hmm. And before Trayvon Martin, uh, I think a lot of people weren't showing the work of Black artists. Um, and 
Trayvon Martin and the proceeding thing. Like, it's really terrible to say that these things are happening because of the death of other people. But I think this, like, is America sort of coming to a reckoning to, like, understand what is and has been going on. Absolutely. And exactly. And gave them understanding of, well, not a better understanding of the things we were talking about anyway. Mm-hmm. Like, because, you know, we've all had like experiences in the neighborhood that didn't have that national impact, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, impacted us personally to see people in our neighborhood, like go through things and maybe even me myself been encounters with police and all this kind of stuff. So like that, that story was always there in the art. Mm-hmm. And we always, as you make your art and, and speaking truth to um, your creations, mm-hmm. then people find it later on, like however they find mm-hmm. it. Like, unfortunately that, you know, we had to sacrifice young brother uh, to get people's attention, but damn, that's the course of history, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. Know I mean? Yeah. I think he will be looked at as like, a, I mean, he didn't know he would be looked at as like a Martin Luther King or an impetus for change. And it's sad that it has that, it's happened that way, but it has. And I want to be on- yeah. I want to be honest with that. I don't want to lie and say that, oh, people just started looking at my work just because they started looking at my work. Like there is a reason that people started paying attention. All right. Excuse us, little technical problems right here, but it's all good. Technology going to kill us all, but it's okay. True. Sure. <laughs> We're good. <laughs> We're good. Before we get you out of here, man, I want to know um, about your piece because I did head up to the uh, African American Museum, the Smithsonian, up in DC, and did get to see a couple of your pieces up in there, man. It was it was good to see them, like up there, my man Rashawn Rucker's up in there, uh, Bisa Butler's up in there for Hamu Piku, all the Studio Noise fam. So, like, so good to see it in there, man. Tell us about that whole series and like having it uh, up in the museum like that. Okay, so the pieces at um, the Smithsonian is called An Offering, um, and it's based off of a series of works that I did after a trip to Ghana in 2016. Um, And it's a combination of paintings and quotes together. Um, And the images, the faces that are used in um, the quotes, the painting part is part of, um, from images of people from Angola. Um, and the quilting part um, is sort of talking about the transatlantic slave trade and how we've made a sort of a migration from Africa to the Americas and we still exist. And each of the pieces are in the shape of the slave ship. Um, and it's each piece is giving an offering to our ancestors who have um, whose persistence helped us remain today. So having it be and the uh, uh, Smithsonian and the Black Museum is just like mind boggling and they acquired the work. So um, it'll be with them for time. So that's really exciting. Yeah, those pieces were really powerful, man. Really powerful. Like how many how many pieces that end up being? It's like 10 of them, right? I think I did like eight of them in the whole series. I don't think they showed all of them in the um, actual exhibition, um, but they yeah. work with what um, whatever ones you want to um, use. So I'm really I'm really proud of that work, and um, I'm really happy for it to be in that space with all those amazing artists. 
Absolutely. And then like the the different techniques that you use to put them together, man, it was really, really top notch. Like it, it belongs in, in that space, in that museum. Um, do you do you consider that to be like sort of a, a high point for you, like in your career? Like you, we talked a little bit before, but you've only been doing it a few years now, like full time. Like, is this like one of the things you put on your list? Like, yeah, I'm doing I'm doing all right right now. Yeah, I mean, it's a high point, but then I think the thing as an artist is you realize that you're still living. <laughs> so There you go. Yeah. You never I'm I'm 43 now and I don't want to have my high point right now. <laughs> I want to continue I want to continue to make work. So, I'm very happy that it's in that space and I was so happy that whole process was of it being in that space. And actually they bought the work years ago and just had it in um, storage. So this was like the first time it was being shown. Um, It just doesn't feel real. To be completely honest, it doesn't feel real. Um, And even when I see it, it doesn't feel real. Um, And I just know that I still have more stories to tell, and um, I'm going to continue to tell them. And as long as people will look at the work and see it, then I'm just going to keep doing it. Nah, you absolutely do, man. I can't wait to see the new stuff you're coming up with, too. Like, do you have any sense of, like, a direction that you're going in now? Like, I mean, because this series has been over for a little while. So I'm sure you got, like, a lot of stuff cooking up in the lab. Yeah, so now it's been this whole process of touring the show and making work. I'm continuing to make work and do exhibitions while the show is running. Um has been a lot and so now I've been able to I'm taking off a couple months and now I'm like working out new ideas and I'm trying to figure out new ways of mixing um painting and quilting together and hopefully um some new um beautiful works will come out of that but it's always sort of like an evolving process Absolutely. I'm sure it is, man. Knowing you, man, I know you got man. I know you got man. Great stuff coming up, man. You you're definitely on my list, one of my favorite artists out right now, man. So uh tell everybody where they can find you, man. So um I'm on Instagram, Stephen Towns, um, and then my website is stephentowns.com. Um and I'll update everybody about everything. There's a publication coming out about this exhibition. We've been we're in the final processes of, so it should be out in oh, like man. a month or yeah. so. That's what's up, man. Got to get it. Got to get one of them. <laughs> Got to get yes. one of them. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. My first publication. That's what's up, man. Yeah. Thank you for coming on the podcast, man. Definitely look forward to to having you back on at certain points, man. As you're making stuff, you know, this is the, this is your audience, man. All the black artists. And we love this kind of stuff, man. So, like, you're definitely you. always welcome. Definitely want to have you back to ask you more questions about the process and stuff. But thank you for coming on. Perfect. Thank you. Another episode of Studio Noise in the bag. Big shout out to Stephen Towns. Finally had some time to come on the podcast. We love it. We love that work. Check out the show if you can. Become a fan. Follow all that good stuff. It's the noise, baby. Back with you. And to all my artists out there, make sure you conquering all your fears. Everything that you weak at, do that first. <laughs> Get into it. Make the noise. 
That's all you need to do to get better. That's all we need to hear from you. It's the noise. Your boy Jay Barber. We'll be back next week. More conversation. I'm out. Peace. Thank you for listening to the Studio Noise Podcast. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Please take a second to rate us and write a review to make sure everybody knows about the noise. Follow us on Instagram at Studio Noise Podcast.